on Kinnebec Road, my mom, dad, and brother lived in a house in the middle of rural southeastern Ohio cow pasture. Our nearest neighbors lived about a mile away through rolling hills that not many people know are part of Ohio's topography. Needless to say, I had to make my own fun out there as a kid. As my mom was making dinner, I'd be upstairs listening to Hillbilly Rock by Marty Stewart on my Walkman. I was a little toe-headed kid who spoke with such an Appalachian drawl that when I moved to the city... City is in quotation marks, dear listener. My classmates bullied it out of me. But before those kids had a chance to replace Marty Stewart with Montel Jordan, I dreamt of playing at the local Twin City Hopper House in nearby McConnellsville. While the scents of dinner wafted throughout that old farmhouse, I would play Air Telecaster along with Western Girls and When the Sun Goes Down, believing I would someday play on the stage of the Opera House. At that point in the early 90s, Twin City Opera House wasn't much more than a place that showed movies a month after they were released on the weekends. However, it was always an event to be able to go there. The Opera House looms 108 feet tall over the town square, a proud example of the small town opera houses that dimple southeastern Ohio, like Stewart's Opera House in Nelsonville. Walking through the breezeway, you were met with a concession stand that took up most of the lobby making it near impossible for more than like 30 people to be in there at a time. I could still smell the popcorn. It smelled unlike any other popcorn I've ever smelled before or since. Walking up the stairs, you could either take a seat in the lower bowl or up more stairs to the balcony. I still remember seeing the Muppet Christmas Carol there when I was five, right before my parents got a divorce and we moved out to Malta, the town across the Muskingum River from McConnellsville. My Uncle Rod at that time was a bit of a playboy bachelor in Morgan County that liked to collect things. He still collects things, but now my Aunt Elaine tamps that down a bit, or so he'd like her to believe. Rod likes to collect cars and old memorabilia from his childhood and rarely gets rid of anything. Some of his more prized possessions were from a magician that was a native of Morton County named McDonald Birch. Birch was a contemporary of Harry Houdini that would often perform for audiences at the Twin City Opera House, as well as, quote, other crowned heads of the world. His act consisted of a disappearing horse named Princess and a bit named the Silk Mirage. After retiring from performing in the 1960s, he'd still go to the schools and other events around the county to show off his illusion skills. He sadly died in 1992, and my Uncle Rod bought his light blue Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, as well as a few other pieces of memorabilia like posters. Rod still has that Carmen Ghia. I told you, he doesn't really like to get rid of his things. The Opera House named the Auditorium Birch Hall, and Birch still may think that it's his stage today. It's said that at least five distinct ghosts occupy the Twin City Opera House. Most of them are friendly towards people, like the ten-year-old girl that giggles in the rafters at night. The old usher, Everett, may even help you to your seat, even though he's been dead for many years. There's also Red Wine Robert, who has given many paranormal investigators clear, intelligent EVPs offering them his red wine. 
The town marshal that was murdered in the alley with a 32 behind the Opera House in 1905 is said to be patrolling the safety of the building to this day. He was shot by someone who was sent to the Athens Lunatic Asylum shortly after. A story for another day that I actually have some close ties to. And even McDonald Birch himself is said to give some nightly performances there. I mean, come on, it's Birch Hall. However, there may be something a little more sinister and evil that resides in the old blocked-off tunnels in the Twin City Opera House. Tunnels connected the old Kennebec Hotel in the Opera House and were rumored to be part of the Underground Railroad to hide escaped slaves from the South. These tunnels under the town square were partially filled in the 1930s due to increased traffic above. Dark, growling figures will drop the temperature of the air around if you get too close. One of these figures was actually captured on video in 2009. More than 1,000 EVPs have been captured by paranormal investigators over the years, making the Opera House one of the most well-documented haunted buildings in Ohio. Jack Osborne even hunted ghosts there for a Travel Channel show in 2019. Come on, what's more scary than the progeny of Ozzy Osbourne? I went to music school starting in 2005 and played music as a jazz trumpet player and singer-songwriter for years after that. After the dream or nightmare of trying to make it as a musician had gone on and I started life as a mental health counselor, I was finally able to take the stage at the Twin City Opera House a few times. My younger self, I know, was excited to play there. It felt to be a bit of a coming home. I hadn't lived in the area for a long time, but I still had ties to Morgan County. I played the song Tempted in my set as an homage to Marty Stewart and the little boy who dreamt of playing in Birch Hall. That nightly disappearing horse act was a good one, man. I couldn't find that damn princess anywhere. I did share a slice of Dino's pizza with the marshal, though. My name is Levi Funk, and this is Faces in the Corner. You may not know me. Hell, I don't even really know myself, usually. I do know I'm a music maker and friend to the other three faces. Hometowns are important to who we are. Although not always a great thing, they still inform our worldview and culture. Sometimes it's bullied out of us by shithead kids in third grade. Here's Will Poole, known by most as Christy Yamaguchi Maine, telling us about his hometown story, The Mako Lights. Mako, North Carolina is a blink and you'll miss it spot on the map. It's not even a town anymore, just a crossroads of US 7476 and North Carolina 87. There's a country store and some dirt roads, and that's basically it. It's just outside the town of Leland, North Carolina, on the other side of the Cape Fear River from Wilmington, about 25 miles from where I'm sitting. But for a long, long time, it was home to one of the most consistent and legendary ghosts in North Carolina's history, the ghost of Joe Baldwin and the Mako Light. Over a century ago, that part of the rail line was known by railway workers as Rattlesnake Grade. The rail line that went through Mako Station was the Wilmington-Manchester line that went from Wilmington, North Carolina to Augusta, Georgia. The legend goes that Joe Baldwin, a brakeman for the rail line, was awoken by the sound of the caboose he was in coming uncoupled from the train one summer night in 1867. Knowing that the conductor at the front wouldn't realize what had happened, and also knowing that there was another train fast approaching from behind on the same track, he ran to the back deck and frantically waved his lantern to try and warn the conductor in the approaching train, but it was too late. The caboose and the train engine collided, killing Joe Baldwin by severing his head from his body. After the accident, Joe Baldwin spent the next hundred years searching for his lost head up and down the rail line near Mako Station, swinging his lantern as he searched. According to Jay Barnes, who writes in Our State Magazine, quote, The Wilmington Railroad Museum says the first sightings of Joe and his lantern date back to 1873. 
Witnesses who saw the phenomenon described an amber light that suddenly appeared out of the darkness. It hovered waist-high above the train tracks, wavering like a swinging lamp as it advanced closer and closer. Just as it reached the observer, it would disappear, only to reappear further up the tracks and with greater intensity. Allegedly, the only period of time it wasn't seen was for 10 years after a powerful earthquake struck Charleston and the South Carolina Low Country in 1886, but sightings resumed shortly thereafter. Over the years, attempts to explain the mysterious specter included distant car headlights, swamp gas, and St. Elmo's fire, a weather phenomenon that some say causes balls of fiery lightning to appear in the sky. Ultimately, each of these theories was discounted. The Mako light predated the automobile by several decades, and anyone who saw it move up and down the tracks rejected the swamp gas theory. President Grover Cleveland's train stopped in Mako on a whistle-stop tour through the area in 1889. When he asked the conductor why the signal man used two lights instead of one, the conductor told him the story of Joe Baldwin, explaining that two lights were needed to distinguish real trains from Baldwin's ghost lantern. The president was intrigued and later shared the tale with colleagues in Washington, D.C., introducing the legend of the Mako light to a national audience. Sightings continued through the years. In 1925, the light apparently chased two local farm boys into the woods. In 1946, Wilmington Morning Star photographer Pete Knight staked out the Mako tracks and returned with a blurry photo that ran in the paper with the caption, There was a chunk of ectoplasm as big as life. Life magazine ran a feature story about it in 1957, prompting visits from famous psychics, visits from university professors, and even a team of investigators from the Smithsonian Institution. And in 1960, a machine gun detachment from Fort Bragg was deployed to hunt down the light, but with no success. Now that's the folklore, and usually, as with most folklore, there's always a little truth. What I'm going to read now are articles written by the local papers in Wilmington, North Carolina, about a railroad accident that occurred not in 1867, but 1856, and happened to a man named Charles Baldwin, not Joe. From the Daily Herald, written on January 5th, 1856. Just as we are going to press, we learn that an accident occurred upon the Wilmington and Manchester Road last night at Rattlesnake Grade, by which several persons were more or less injured among them, Charles Baldwin and E.L. Sherwood of this town. Mr. Baldwin's injuries, it is feared, may result fatally. From the Wilmington Journal, January 7, 1856. We learn that a painful accident occurred last night on the Wilmington and Manchester Railroad in the neighborhood of Hood's Creek some eight or ten miles from this town. It would appear that an account of some defect in the working of the pumps of the locomotive engaged in carrying up the night train going west from this place. The engineer detached the train and ran on ahead some distance, and in returning to take up the train again, came back at so high a rate of speed as to cause a serious collision, resulting in some damage to the train, the mail car being smashed up, and some little damage done to the other cars. The most painful circumstance connected with the affair is that Mr. Charles Baldwin, the conductor, got seriously and it is feared mortally injured by being thrown from the train with so much force as to cause concussion of the brain. Mr. E.L. Sherwood, mail agent, was also slightly injured. None of the passengers were in any way hurt until the circumstances of the affair can be more fully examined into we forbear any comment. And lastly, from the Daily Herald, January 8, 1856, we regret to state that Mr. Charles Baldwin, who was seriously injured by an accident on the Manchester Road Friday evening last, died last night. Mr. Baldwin was highly esteemed for his many good qualities, and his death is deeply deplored by a large number of friends. Author Bland Simpson 
interviewed on North Carolina Public Radio in 2005 called the Mako Light one of his favorite North Carolina legends, described his own sighting of it as like a match, the light in a kerosene lantern. What the source of it was, I'll never know. Sighting of the light ended in 1977 when the railroad removed the track and a trestle bridge related to the legend was destroyed. And that is the legend of Joe Baldwin and the Mako Lights. Zanesville, the city I grew up in, had a large pop-punk scene in the aughts and 2010s. The running joke was pop-punk is about two things, pizza and leaving your hometown. Writer Alex Press, at Alex N. Press on Twitter, tells us about the time she fled her hometown for Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Sometimes the monkey on your back that causes us to leave is actually chasing us. So it was around the turn of the millennium. Um, we had just moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania from New York City. Me, my brother, and my parents. There was this event going on around Halloween. Um, there's a part of town called Station Square. Um, and so naturally for Halloween, they change it to Station Scare. Um, <laughs> Pittsburgh brilliance. And um, they have a bunch of haunted houses and it's like a little festival, right? And um, you know, sort of sideshows and cotton candy, stuff like that. And so my parents take me and my brother there. Again, we're little kids. I might've been like seven, eight years old. And my parents being somewhat neglectful, you know, basically just let me and my brother go off and run around um, the area, fairgrounds. And um, I go into a tent that is a sideshow um, and it features a man who is half gorilla, half man. That's what's billed outside, right? And so I sit through the show and I watch this guy turn into a gorilla and it's crazy. It's terrifying. I scream. Everybody's, you know, thrilled. But then when the show is over and people start filing out of the tent, I stand in the back and I'm pretty sure I actually hid behind the folds of the tent um, like a little kid would behind a curtain or something in the house. Um, because I wanted to see what the deal was with this guy. Um, and would you believe it, when everyone was gone, this man takes off the head of the gorilla. It's not really his head. He's wearing a costume. Who can believe it? Uh, he's walking around like a regular schmo uh, and he's not a gorilla. So now I have always been driven by a sense of, um, you know, I'm outraged by injustice, we could say. And here's a guy lying to the public, okay? And so what do I do? I decide to stay in for the next showing. I'm hiding in the back. No one's noticing me. It's very dark. It's nighttime. It's Halloween in Pittsburgh. People start filing back in for the next showing. And he starts performing. You know, he's explaining that sometimes you just can't help it. He turns into a gorilla. And sure enough, just as he has his transformation, I step out from the back into the aisle and I scream at the top of my lungs, it's a costume. <laughs>
The tent is silent. The guy looks at me from the stage and I'm telling you, I'm not making this up. I still remember the anger in this man's face when I said this. No one really knows what to do, you know, and it could have been handled a normal way in which, you know, the performer might, I would say, we're all adults. We could imagine being that guy. You would laugh it off. You're like a little girl being ridiculous and you just carry on with the show. This guy instead bounds off the stage, jumps into the aisle and starts running directly at me. Granted, again, reminder, he is in a gorilla costume at this point. So there is a giant gorilla man <laughs> running at me. I turn 180 and start booking it out of the tent. I run into the middle of the fairgrounds. You know, there are people just wandering around, having a good time. And I am just screaming at the top of my lungs and just running. And this guy keeps following me i thought maybe he would you know he was just trying to scare me or even this was his response to put on a show is to pretend to attack me or something no there is no pretending going on he kept, he did not slow down when we left the tent and so we are i'm zigzagging all around and again just to set the scene you know it's just like this beautiful evening in pittsburgh everyone's having a good time but it's also a scary halloween themed event and so people i assume thought that this was part of the show that there was this little girl being chased by a guy in a gorilla costume so no one is doing anything because they think it's just really good acting or something and i remember i finally get to this rotunda where a sideshow is going on there's this character in pittsburgh named vlad the impaler um who sticks various things up his nose uh you know nails objects stuff like that things of that nature and uh vlad is putting on his show and there's a little crowd and so there's you know it's a circle and I just start running and running around and around as Vlad is nailing things in, up his nostril and people are just paying attention to the show on stage. So people aren't noticing, but I'm screaming and I'm running. And finally, I notice that my parents are in the crowd watching Vlad because my parents are sort of um, somewhat questionable characters. They're like punk weird artists. So they actually know Vlad from like the performer community or whatever. And so they're there and I recognize them and I start, I lock on my mom. She's really the tough one of the two. I start screaming her name at the top of my lungs. Jackie Rowden, Jackie, Jackie, mom. And I'm just running in circles. And sure enough, finally, my mom notices what's going on. And look, I was busy. I was busy running. So I don't know exactly how she positioned herself, but knowing my mother fairly well, I would say probably like a sort of a quarterback stance. Uh, and she plants her feet to be in the way of uh, my pursuer, Gorilla Man. And uh, she times it just right so that I run past her and she stands and then he gets to near her and she tackles him. I'm not kidding. My mother fully tackled the man in the gorilla costume. And I gotta say, I don't really know what happened after that. I know that we just left Station Scare. You know, my parents uh, are not ones to uh, pursue some sort of legal charges or anything like that. Though I gotta tell you, you know, this guy was a loose cannon and, uh, you know, I have conflicted feelings about this now as an adult. 
because this guy obviously was a low wage worker and I was harassing him. And so I don't know. Uh, this is not an, a good start for someone who uh, wants to fight for the working class, but uh, it's just what happened. And um, I guess the addendum to this story is that my dad, who I've mentioned, is a bit of a strange street artist. Um, he acquired a gorilla costume some years later, um, which he liked to play. He would set up his keyboard on the porch at our house and uh, he would play spooky music around Halloween. And he said it was to scare the neighborhood kids. And I just can't understand how he could do that, <laughs> given what had happened to me. Um, but he made a point, you know, sometimes him and a couple buddies would also play um, in a band where they all wore gorilla costumes. I'm not making that up. That really is uh, the kind of parenting that I've been putting up with my whole life. And uh, But there was a rule unwritten in the household that he would not wear the gorilla costume when I was around. Um, and so that's the story. Uh, you know, I'm sort of wondering if maybe now that, you know, I, I, I write and have somewhat of an audience, if I could kind of find this man, you know, I'm back in Pittsburgh now. Maybe we could have a, a reconciliation of sorts and I could see what was going on that day for him um, and what led him to attack me. Um, but yeah, that's that's maybe the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. Sometimes, hometowns are innocuous little places that we don't give too much thought to. It's simply where we're from. What happens when your hometown is home to one of the most infamous time periods in United States history? Hold on tight, as we talk to Bryce Caffarelli, also known as AirX on Twitch, as he talks about the real Salem, Massachusetts. Tonight, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your hometown. Uh, you live in probably one of the the weirdest places in the United States. The Witch City. Witch, is that what you guys call yourselves? Yeah, the Witch City. I mean, that's kind of what it's known as. Our uh, high school, our mascot's a witch. The Salem really? Witches, yeah. I did a little bit of reading about what's going on over there, and... Is it true that your cop cars have witches 
stuff on it too. I do believe some of them have uh, have witches on. I mean, it's kind of painted all over the city. Really? It's like, uh, so the logo you see a lot is just a circle, like, and it has the outline of witches. It's a black circle with the outline of a witch. So I've never been to Salem before. Paint the picture because to me it seems like a lot of brick. There's tons of brick, but that's downtown. So downtown is all brick. It's like cobblestone. It's old, but then everything else like around Salem now is kind of it's all new. I mean, they're putting up condos everywhere, apartments. So it's like you get to downtown, and it's all old fashioned, and then everything outside of that, it's like being built up right now. Mm, so it's getting gentrified, do you think? Or oh, hundred percent, yeah. I, I did a little bit of reading, and it seems like it's not that big of a city either. It's like forty five thousand people or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a pretty small city. It's definitely one of the places in the United States that has one of the more sinister pasts. I guess. Were you aware of that when you were growing up? Like, what was what? What were you told about where you lived when you were a kid? So I mean, we talked about it in like school. I mean, we weren't really too aware i mean everywhere you go though you see something about witches so as a kid you kind of grow up something happened here but you don't really know what until i'd say like middle school we actually started talking about like history and everything and the craziest part about it is that everyone considers it like the witch city and they talk about the salem witch trials but salem isn't actually where the witch trials happened they actually happened a couple towns over in danvers and salem is where they would do like the hangings and stuff. They wouldn't actually do the trials here, but they say Salem was trials. Salem is famous for it just because this is where everything kind of happened. Like we have, um, I think there's two memorials now for the witches that were like hung and drowned. One, there's one that's downtown. And then there's one in the actual area where the hangings were happening. It's called uh, the Salem Willows. It's a, it's a park now. But they're like right down the street from it. There's a little like section that has all the names of like witches that were hung, I believe. So do you guys call them witches or do you call them like like these people that weren't for all intents and purposes, probably, probably, maybe weren't witches. Actually, do you guys call them witches? Because you just straight out said like we had lists of people that were witches. I said witches, but I guess it's more accurately like victims, you know? So what 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 would a witch memorial look like? What to paint that picture for me? Both basically the same thing. The one downtown, it's right next to a graveyard. It's um an huh. old like graveyard from the 1800s. Like it's got all the old uh gravestones and everything. It's pretty crazy. And the memorial for them is just a bunch of rocks with their names carved into it. That's basically it. And you walk around like a gravel path. You can just read all the names. And then the new one that's right at uh, the Willows, it's pretty much the same thing. It's just like a little little circle on the side of the road with names uh, written in it. I guess something about these like small to medium-sized cities that have like a singular thing that everybody knows them for. Like I'm thinking like Point Pleasant in West Virginia. It's where the Mothman stuff happened, the bridge collapse. So everybody knows about Mothman. And I, I, I'm i going to venture to guess that a lot of the town's economy is based on tourism. Just purely about Mothman. Do you guys kind of experience that too? Or 
What do you what do you think? A hundred percent. I mean, there's a mall in Salem. And I think if you go there any other time, nothing's happening there. Like the stores aren't even open in it. Whoa. There's maybe like one pizza shop that's open and then there's a restaurant in it. All of the other ones are kind of like Halloween themed or like based around like Salem witch trials. So they get most of their business in October and they keep that place running just off the income they make in that one month. So it's like that spirit Halloween meme, but real. But like a whole mall of stores. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God. basically. That's interesting. So like there's like a pizza shop in there. What what else would be in the witch mall? Shops where people go like Wiccans and stuff and they actually go there and they can get stuff that they need. But then there's also like just a clothing store with like Salem Renacross, you know, a bunch of stuff like that. Uh, there was a movie theater shut down now, but there was a movie theater. Yeah, so there's a haunted house, couple clothing stores, actual like a wood shops, and a pizza store. Pretty much it. Yeah, I guess like they would need that expanded infrastructure for a bunch of tourists that are coming in and they want to spend money. If you could tell somebody who's not from Salem, like what what would somebody who's never been there before need to know about it before they visit? Honestly, I don't think Salem is really different than anywhere else. The only thing that's different is it gets really busy in October. And there's no way to get out of Salem. Like, there's no highways or anything through Salem. So if you need to go anywhere that's not here, you're going to be stuck in traffic. There's going to be tons of people on the roads. I mean, there's really not much besides the fact that whenever you say you're from Salem, someone says, oh, it's a witch city. I mean, I took a drive just to the next town over. It's usually like a... 15 minute drive or something it took me about i'd say 40 minutes and that was Jeez. mostly just trying to get us yeah just trying to get out of salem <laughs> all the action happens downtown so if it's downtown i think most people just stay clear of downtown like they don't want to deal with any of the tourists we just don't even bother with downtown on halloween a lot of fun to go down there i mean there's stuff happening down there you go go to a bar or there are people dressed up in costumes all over the place or you get to see everyone dressed up a lot of the times there's a um like little fairs going on or something down there so i mean it's a good time to go down there but most of most of the time we just try to avoid it they kind of take over that whole area in october yeah and you were just over at my house a couple weekends ago and when halloween halloween at ou like athens halloween is usually it's stuff of legends because OU used to be one of the biggest party schools in the country. And it was for like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Are there any other time? Like, is there like a witch's weekend or is there anything like, like to try to keep people from leaving? Like, is there, is there like, like a festival in the middle of July that's designed to get people back into Salem or? No, not really. Nothing that I know of. There's, it's pretty much, only October. I mean, there are, I think there are a few like Wiccan holidays and stuff where people might come visit. That's not like tourist space. That's like actually just what they believe in and what they, their religion is. So they want to come here and see what's going on. But besides that, not much that goes on here. I mean, so do you guys, do, do you see like a lot of uh, witches and like actual like people who practice Wicca? Like, do you see people like that? Like, all the time or what so my grandmother was actually is actually a wiccan 
Really? She, um, okay. Yeah, she she had her own uh, shop in Salem. It wasn't downtown, but it was like an actual like Wiccan store where she had her like practice and she had all her uh, all her stuff. So there there are those stores that stay open year round. Definitely attracts Wiccans and even people just like from Salem that are walking by. Like it's always fun to go in the store and just look around and see what they have. Yeah, I've known you for three years and I didn't know your grandma was a witch. She's been, I don't know when it, she became a witch. You know, it just kind of happened. Just one of those things. Maybe it's because she was in Salem for so long. She's got taken over by it. Yeah, when in Rome, right? <laughs> when in Salem, do as the witches do. Exactly. But once again, I am surprised by the fact that, you know, there are people that actually come there that practice witchcraft. I, I thought it would just be kind of like a tourist trap thing, like Epcot or something like that. Mm-hmm. I know that people of Islamic faith go to Mecca. Do you think people that are witches in the United States make their pilgrimage to Salem? I don't know about that. I think it's more like if they're in the area in New England, I think it is one that stops. Like, I think they would come visit on Halloween down at the Willows where they used to do the hangings. There's a ritual that goes on there. I'm not exactly sure who does it i don't know like what religion it is but every year it used to scare the shit out of me as a kid because we'd go down to the park and we'd see about 30 40 people i don't know in like black robes and they would be in a circle and they'd be like chanting and doing the ritual and you know as a kid not knowing what's going on over there i was like is that fucking cults over there like what is that I'm just trying to go and get some candy. I don't know what's going on. And it happens late too. So it's dark and you just see like their silhouettes in the background by the woods. Just like doing more. You can hear the voices from a distance. It's crazy. Did you ever find out who they were? To this day, I've not found out. That's awesome. Maybe this year. Not for you because it's happening in your neighborhood. But that, like as somebody who's safely tucked into the hills of Ohio, that fucking rules. That's really cool. Like, walking by them, I mean, it wasn't really scary, but it was like, what is going on, you know? I I know I kind of asked this question before, but is there anything else that you would like people to know about Salem? Or you and your relationship to Salem? Because, like I said, I didn't know your grandma was a witch, and I've known you for years now. Right now, it's kind of getting overpopulated, like... There's a lot of condos and everything going up. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's not as great as it used to be. There's just too much going on now. They're trying to throw too many people in here. Almost every month's going to be like October pretty soon with all the people that are going to be moving here. So I would say get here sooner than later before it's overpopulated so you can actually see what's going on. That's it for tonight, folks. If you like what you've heard, hit the show notes for the pre-order link to our companion zine, which, if you order one, will be hitting your mailboxes very soon. Don't want a zine, but want to give us a love offering instead? Our Venmo and Cash App links are in the show notes as well. Faces in the Corner is brought to you by Boss Babies LLC and through the generous support of our sponsors and listeners like you. Faces in the Corner is produced by me, Tom Sexton, Matthew Carter, Levi Funk, and Daniel Pujol, with original music by Daniel Pujol. Thanks again for being with us, and remember, 
When you lay your head down tonight and you cut off all those lights, may the faces you see in the corner be ever in your corner. Sweet dreams.